3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to late 30am. Good morning. It is 3CR Wednesday breakfast. Happy belated New Year, everyone. Woo. You're here in the studio with um, Edwin and Will. Hello. Uh, half of our team are missing, but that's okay. They're all on holiday, so you've got us for a, for the summer season, <laughs> as it said. So I miss I, you, Judith. Miss you, Dean. See you soon. Totally, totally. So I guess um, uh, well, we start off the conversation this morning with the obvious, uh, what did you do over the New Year's? Mm. So, Will, summary. I uh, went to Sydney um, and missed out by a day on my sister having a baby. Oh. Came back because the, the baby had a lion and um, <laughs> that's the mood for 2019, I think. That, that Yeah, no, that, that sounds about right. Yeah. I've gone into 2019 with a lot of positivity. Um, mm. A lot of my friends are very like happy about this year. They're like, oh yeah, 2019 is going to rock. Because um, 2018 mm. was a bit of a odd uh, year, but I have to say I'm not I'm not so sure I'm not I'm not feeling, not feeling it, it yet. No, no, no. okay. <laughs> I'm still saying it's 2018 and I'm yep 18, yep. not my actual age. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the ages have like transpired or yeah. switched over yet. Right, okay. Mm. Um, how about like culture and stuff though? Because we've had time mm. off. You've had time off. Um, all of your various volunteer jobs and that sort of thing, and I've had. <laughs> Time off being here in Melbourne. So, yeah. Um, yeah, what have you been up to? Okay, well, I've been um, seeing a lot of different oh, music and art. So, mm. over the weekend, this weekend most notably, we went to go see the Frida Kahlo exhibit up in the Bendigo. Mm-hmm. Uh, just for listeners, if you've never been up to the Bendigo uh, Gallery, it's fantastic. It's really good. <laughs> yeah, the Bendigo Art Gallery, they have a permanent exhibition um, yeah. featuring the art of um, Indigenous people local yeah. to the area. The, Tangerong, I it's believe. It's just I'm so, really sorry. super yeah. cool. Um, and so the Frida Kahlo exhibit, for any of you interested, is not actually her paintings, uh, mm. but photos from her personal life. And it's really fascinating because some of these photos were like locked down for decades due mm. to her father's wishes. But uh-huh. um, getting to look at them, you get a really interesting personal insight to like some of the motivations and things going behind her. Mm. I do suggest, though, if people are going to go to the exhibit, uh, you know a little bit about Frida Kahlo just because it helps to have that background. But it's fascinating stuff. They also have a very cool um, gothic exhibit where they're looking at like the evolution of the gothic genre. Oh my gosh, I was there in time for that. I've I've seen that. That's cool. And it's just um like you walk into the room, they've got this big black hearse, yes, like a horse-drawn hearse, mm-hmm. and then um this sort of really kind of creepy like art with bones in it and yes. stuff like that. I don't Definitely. know. Um, I think there was one which was like the woman eats her, the vampire, I think it was, with all these bones and stuff like that. But yeah, it's looking at all the really intricate, like different parts of the genre. So it's really quite fascinating. And it's of a beautiful collection of different artwork and different uh, artists' take on it. So it's really, Mm. I don't know, I I like the the mix. Yeah, yeah. Benigo Art Gallery. Recommend. (laughs) Thumbs up. Um, I. 
I was going to use the Frage binge watch, but I know that that's, that's troubling. Um, mm-hmm. but it did feel like it as well. Like I couldn't stop myself and that's like bad. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, but anyway, I was watching, um, something on a, um, on a streaming platform that we don't have to mention. Um, and the show is called, uh, Press and it's, uh, sort of about the fictionalized, uh, competition between two major papers in oh. the UK. Okay. Um, one of them definitely isn't The Sun, and the other <laughs> one definitely isn't The Guardian. Okay. Um, and so they're from two different camps ideologically when it comes to media representation. I just found it really interesting um, seeing this thing that I'm thinking about all the time, which is the, the, the sort of the way that ideology governs these large papers, but also commercial interests and, um, right. you know, the sort of the machinations behind the scenes of mainstream media sources sort of play out in a really interesting sort of dramatic way. And if you <laughs> get a chance done. to, yeah, yeah, it was, it was like, it was t- sort of really schlock, yeah. um, sort of, um, television, but it was, it was a lot of fun. If you get a chance, nice. watch press. I'd recommend it. Nice. It nice. was a lot of fun. Um, oh, for good shows, and I'll only touch on it quick, mm. uh, SBS, I've been getting hooked on uh, Swedish Sherlock Holmes, I'm going to call him. Swedish Sherlock I've got a, Holmes. <laughs> I'll find the name for us later in the show. Yeah. But it's um, on SBS On Demand, and uh. it's following, oh, yeah, this character who's like, it's a period drama, but mm. it's a character in Sweden who's like a retired war veteran, kind of, you know, uh, doctor on the f- on doctor on the front, and he's... Mm hate civilization is actually parallel to the French Revolution, so he's kind of one of those revolutionaries. Okay. But he's joined the institution of the police command. Somehow he's been roped in. Hmm. And now he's acting as, like, this weird half-and-half detective where he's like, but I fight for the resistance, but I'm also helping people in need. I've been been watching that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, Swedish Sherlock Holmes. I'm sure that's not the actual name. We'll come back with no, that. But we well. can give you the weather. Yeah, At least when it hit a top of 20 today, um, there was an early shower. Um, when they say early, as in before I left the house this morning. Uh, not before I left the house. Not before you left While the I house. was walking to the train station. Fun. Mm. Okay, so there was, there was an early shower. Um, they say slight chance of a shower in the morning. I'm not sure if it's going to be raining throughout the morning, but it feels like it's dried up for now. Mm. Um, maximum of 20. So um, sort of cool. It's a bit balmy, would you say, outside? Yeah, I would actually. It's, it's not yeah. cold. Although if you're listening to us, to be honest, you're probably already in the car or on the train. So um, <laughs> you're fine. <laughs> welcome to the outside. I hope you have a wonderful Wednesday. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll be back right after this. We're just going to play Nitty Gritty by uh, Shelley Elise, and we'll be back with uh, some alternative news. So, woo. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going. Right down to the real nitty gritty. 
And you are back with, sorry, you are listening to 3CR Community Radio. This is Wednesday Breakfast, and um, I thought I might just introduce you to an article from the Green Left Weekly, written by Pip Hinman. Uh, Hinman? Hinman? I'm oh, sorry, Pip. Uh, it came out on January the 7th, and it covers the, uh, the quote, right-wing split from the Greens New South Wales, unquote. Uh, and so this is uh, in reference to the fact that... Uh, Jeremy Buckingham, who was formerly men- member of the New South Wales Greens Party, um, has split and has decided to run as an independent. And um, so that's one MP gone. And three of those, three MPs from um, the Greens New South Wales have publicly supported his campaign as an independent in the next New South Wales Legislative Council. Um, so this uh, seems to be the fruition of a long-running debate, um, as quoted as I quote from the paper, um, from the article, over strategy and tati- tactics in the Greens New South Wales. But they characterise this as the right wing splitting from the Greens. Um, and this is sort of backed up by um, something else that's mentioned in the article, that Buckingham went on ABC Radio National and railed against the, uh, the socialists, quote, inside and outside the Greens New South Wales, who have been um, infiltrating the party in Jeremy Buckingham's uh, description. And he's talked about a clandestine organised program by socialist organisations to take it over. Um, and that was a direct quote of Jeremy Buckingham on that show. So um, uh, it's just interesting to see what's going on in state politics in other, in other states. Yeah. Something that I, I haven't really been paying a heap of attention to. I do remember that Jeremy Buckingham has had accusations against him of certain things. Oh. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Sorry, Will, to interrupt you. Yeah. Um, no, I was just thinking, um, might be alternative news this week's a little more annoying. I have to mention the name, uh, Fraser Anning, which is frustrating. Uh, yes. What I've been finding interesting, uh, is the media coverage surrounding, uh, the condemnation of his recent, um, attendance of the white nationalist protest rally. Sure. Which is really fascinating because when you Google, Morrison condemn Anning, you get different accounts from different newspapers. Mm. Certain newspapers go, oh, yeah, he's condemned it. He's done it outright, fully, finished. Okay. Other ones are, like, waiting to. Other ones mm. are urges. And it's really okay. fascinating because without one narrative around this, like, mm. it's different words, it leaves it mu- very much in doubt about what the government's responsibility or, or action is towards this. Right. Hmm. So, anyway, I've been following around and looking at this, and there's a, also, to shout out, a really good, like, Article, there's a really good article in the conversation looking at what parliamentary entitlements um, should allow politicians to do and what not to do. Because, of course, Fraser Addings had the ridiculous quote about attending this white nationalist St Kilda rally um, with, it's official business, uh, Senator, I didn't go there for a picnic. Okay. So just kind of opening up to that, that kind of idea of, well, should we really be allowing our politicians to use taxpayer, taxpayer um, money for the commutes to these sorts of Events. Is it part of their parliamentary duty? Are they representing the people and their interests, or are they misusing money and funds? Anyway, mm. that's just a question I've been kind of asking. Sorry to interrupt you. I think I might have missed out. No, 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 no. I was basically just um, just introducing people to that article. I thought yeah. it was um, it's it's interesting to know what's going on in other state politics. Um, yeah. No, definitely. Um, a completely different look on things, uh, as this is. Our summer season, and it's a bit silly. Um, I was reading about a completely different state, which is the state of uh, Gabon, and their recent elections. Now, not endorsing 
any candidates. Um, but I was reading. <laughs> not a, to influence the vote in Gabon. To, no. Fantastic. Not to influence the. Because we know that a lot of um, a lot of West African political pundits listen to our show, don't they? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, one of the candidates, Ali Bongo. Um, fascinatingly, is an, is an interesting man, but actually put out a funk record in the oh, 1970s, which cool. I've been listening to, I, I will admit, on repeat. Mm. So there's another piece of... Reminds me of the <laughs> Texas governor hopeful, um, Beto O'Rourke, who used to be part of a punk band. For <laughs> um, well, our own um, Midnight Oil. Oh, yeah. God, what's his name? P- oh, oh my We should know this. Are we <laughs> too young? Is this uh, disgusting? Yeah, this is gross. Uh, <laughs> shall we move on? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we're going to get into um, some CSAs, and we'll be right um, on with an interview after that. So we'll listen to you then. <laughs> some people think little girls should be seen and not heard, but I think... Wayward Girl, the intersectional feminist music show. Tune in Fridays 9 to 10 through summer on 3CR. Lest we forget, join us to commemorate the 177th anniversary of the execution of the two Indigenous freedom fighters, Tanaminawe and Morbohina, at the Tanaminawe and Morbohina Monument at the corner of Victoria and Franklin Street, Melbourne, at midday on Sunday, the 20th of January 2019. Walk with us after the ceremony to the Queen Victoria markets to their last resting place. Please bring flowers. The first hour of the ceremony will broadcast live by Community Radio 3CR. If you can't join us for the ceremony, listen in to 3CR midday to 1pm on Sunday the 20th of Have you ever wondered about the meaning of the terms identity politics, intersectionality, turf or institutional racism? Same here. This summer, Tuesday Breakfast is going back to school to answer these questions and more. Join us as we learn from experts, academics, writers, activists and people with lived experiences to share their knowledge on decolonization, sovereignty and self-determination, race and identity, sexuality and gender, and disability and accessibility. Knowledge shouldn't be locked away at a university, so let us bring it to you. Tune in to Summer School, Tuesday mornings from 7am, starting the 8th of January, 855am or via 3cr.org.au. And check out our Instagram, 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, for more details. This is 3CR Community Radio Wednesday Breakfast, and next up we have a segment recorded by Indigenous Rights Radio, which is a program of cultural survival, um, 
and this is in recognition of the fact that 2019 has been declared International Year of Indigenous Languages by the UN. Now, there are a lot of these um, big programs run by the UN, but what matters is that this is Indigenous-led. Um, this interview, uh, oh, sorry, in this segment, uh, Indigenous Rights Radio interviews Kaimana Barkes from Hawaii, who tells us how important Indigenous languages are to the environment. They also interview Denver Breda, who is an Indigenous language act- activist from South Africa. Um, so let's listen in and see what they have to say. Indigenous Rights Radio, because knowledge is power. Twenty nineteen is upon us and this will be a good year for the approximately three hundred and seventy million indigenous peoples around the world because this year is the International Year of Indigenous Languages. The following is some background taken from UNESCO's official website of the International Year of Indigenous Languages. Quote In twenty sixteen the United Nations General Assembly adopted a resolution proclaiming twenty nineteen as the International Year of Indigenous Languages, based on a recommendation by the Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. At the time, the forum said that 40% of the estimated 6,700 languages spoken around the world were in danger of disappearing. The fact that most of these are Indigenous languages puts the cultures and knowledge systems to which they belong at risk. In addition, Indigenous peoples are often isolated both politically and socially, in the countries they live in, by the geographical location of their communities, their separate histories, cultures, languages and traditions. And yet, they are not only leaders in protecting the environment, but their languages represent complex systems of knowledge and communication and should be recognized as a strategic national resource for development, peace-building and reconciliation. End quote. Kaimana Balkes relates a story of the connection between the environment and the language of indigenous peoples and how the two are intertwined. Alhonu mai kako wa ho ike o kaimana o nalani bakasino ho ho ike ia. Po mai ka e wao kano ho pū a wala awana no ke ia kumuhana o ia ho e kapilina mo vaina o ka olelo a me ke kaia ola, ke kaia ulu, ke au kulohe lohe nohi. So the connection between language and the environment and climate change. So first off, is there a connection? Yes, there definitely is a connection, especially with um, indigenous languages, indigenous peoples. Um, I can only speak for us over in Hawaii, but there's definitely a connection between the environment and, and our language. Um, our perspectives, our point of view, is that, you know, unlike a lot of Western society who, that believes we're here to rule and dominate the, the earth, we believe that we are a part of the earth. We're part of the ecosystem. And we have that connection back and forth to the earth. Um, in many ways, our deities are all connected to the earth. We have deities that are connected to the mountains, to the trees, to the oceans, to the sky. Um, and we communicate with these deities. And we do it, of course, through our, our indigenous language. Now, just in respect to our language, for instance, we have hundreds of names for rain. In English, you have rain, you have drizzle, you have hard rain, drenching rain. They're all modifiers to the rain. But in in our society, we have many names for the rain and many names for the winds. Knowing the names for the winds and the rains can tell you, one, where you are, what island you're at. It can also tell you what season you're in. 
It can also tell you what kind of events are happening. It can also predict what kind of events are, are going to happen. If we're um, in the uplands of, of, of Waiakea and we feel the Uluwa winds, we know that the trade winds light, and we know that this is a, a land-associated breeze that brings with it a certain feel and a certain fragrance. Uh, if we feel the Malualu Aki'ivai winds, it's a, a cool, stiff wind. We know that rain is going to follow shortly after. Because Malualu Aki'ivai, Ki'ivai means to, uh, to gather and bring the rains over. So our language is really closely tied to what we observe and what we see out in, in nature. Another example of that would be um, in an old story, the Kihaihai winds of the Hamakua Moku, the Hamakua area, is that association. And Kihaihai means to, Kihaihai Lai means to strip and to um, tear the tea leaf, which requires a really, really strong wind. Um, in a story, the Kihaihai winds visited the Hilo area. Now, that's not a wind of Hilo, that's a wind of Hamakua. But with winds of that force visiting Hilo, you can kind of understand that it was an out-of-season wind. It was an um, abnormal wind. You could infer that it was, it was a storm or a hurricane, something that brought those type of winds that are not coming to the area, to that area. So in that way, we can understand, we can frame our language, uh, we frame the climate, we frame, um, frame the environment through our language and how our language describes the environment. So, in, in my opinion, there's definitely a connection between the environment and our language. And also climate change. Looking through our oral histories and our written histories to understand what the seasons and the cycles are can give us data over time. And that's, that's fully scientific data. That is, is historic observed data over hundreds of years. And when we understand how that cycle changes and compare that to the cycle and how it changes now, you can see the pattern of climate change. As things start to warm up, as certain areas start to um, have the sea level rise, as certain areas that has acidification of the ocean that we see the seaweed that was once there, that's not there. We listen to our songs of a certain area. It talks about of the limulipoa. It's a type of seaweed and the, the alamihi crabs. And that area is, is Waikiki, right in the heart of what everybody knows of, of Hawaii to be based on the news and based on TV. You go there today, you won't see Alamihi, you go, that little crab. You go there today, you won't see the Limulipoa. You won't smell the Lipoa like you used to. That tells us that, that maybe not necessarily that climate, but that environment had changed. And it's true, because Waikiki Beach, a lot of people don't realize, it, it wasn't that beautiful white sand beach that it is today popular for tourists. That sand was imported from elsewhere. So by knowing your language, by knowing your history, by understanding how descriptive and how intimate our language is with the environment, you can understand the nuances, whether they be really subtle or really obvious. You can understand the changes. And by that, you can understand your relationship to the environment, and you can see how the climate is changing around us every day. The world will indeed be a poorer place without the languages and cultures of indigenous peoples. So it is necessary to celebrate and promote indigenous languages, thereby improving the lives of the peoples who speak the languages. In South Africa, in December 2018, 
the National Indigenous Languages Week was held for the first time to promote awareness and preservation of the languages of the indigenous Khoisan peoples. Language activist Denver Breda tells us more. My name is Denver Toroha Breda. I'm a Khoi language and cultural activist uh, based in Khoi Kaip, which is the original name of Cape Town. And on the 1st to the 8th December, we will be having the first ever Khoi Languages Week. The purpose of the week is to create awareness about our Khoi languages, which in 20. 18 is still not recognized as official languages, you know, and, and, and this despite being 24 years into democracy in South Africa, we are still the people without language, without culture, without identity, that's not recognized, our children are still not able to be taught um, our Khoi languages, and it's really sad, you know, in a country that speaks to having the most liberal constitution that is regarded as one of the, the countries that that many countries sort of model themselves and yet our Khoi people are still invisible, you know, we are not seen in, in public uh, discourse we are not spoken about, we are pretended that we don't exist and, and, and part of finding ourselves in our heritage finding out who we are is to reclaim the languages that were spoken here and, and, and we are trying to just you know, with this week, as again, we are not funded, we are not government supported we are not funded by any private institution it really is a community led event that speaks to um, the reclamation of the first languages of the land and and for us you know it really is important as a people because we are literally being thrown away you know we are not being recognized so what can you as an indigenous person do to get involved to get behind the celebration of indigenous languages scheduled for 2019 you can register as an individual or as an organization on iyil2019.org the official website of the International Year of Indigenous Languages. This website also has information about how you or your organization can co-organize events, sponsor projects, and promote the International Year of Indigenous Languages. For more info on the rights of indigenous peoples, visit cs.org and check out Cultural Survival on Facebook and Twitter. And that was Indigenous Rights Radio, uh, celebrating 2019 as the International Year of Indigenous Languages. Indigenous, Indigenous Rights Radio is a program of cultural survival, and you can find out more about them at rights.culturalsurvival.org. We'll be right back. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. Become entranced by dark and twisted soundscapes during 3CR's summer special music program Midnight Mass, featuring psychedelic trance on the darker side of the spectrum. Tune in for the forest beats, local music artist interviews and talk of electronic music production on 3CR every Friday night during summer programming between 11pm and 1am. Hi, I'm Jeff Tobin from Jazz on a Saturday, which is presented 
by the Victorian Jazz Club every week here on Community Radio 3CR. During the month of January, on Wednesdays between 2 and 4, I'll be sitting in for Kate Susie, who are having a well-earned break, and uh, I'll be presenting jazz, blues, western swing and a couple of specials on women who have made a great contribution to jazz and blues over the last century. And Kate and Susie will be back with you on Wednesday the 13th of February. Until then, enjoy the jazz, blues and western swing. You don't know the words Words are hard to remember When they mean nothing at all To the heart are still waiting For their voice to be heard Don't sing me your anthem When your anthem's absurd Every year 3CR marks Invasion Day With special programming that gives voice To the ongoing struggle for land justice in this country Shut up for justice Shut up for truth our shows cover the real history of Australia, cross to local events and rallies around town and celebrate the survival and culture of Aboriginal people. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Abolish Australia Day. Tune in to 3CR on Saturday, January 26th for coverage of the 2019 Invasion Day events and issues. This is 3CR Community Radio and you're listening to the Wednesday Breakfast Show. Uh, up next we're going to be speaking to Creatrix Tiara, for whom I was having a lot of difficulty trying to um, write an, uh, an introduction this morning because um, Creatrix Tiara works across disciplines, um, has worked in burlesque, has a background in writing, in production and sort of um, making connections between people and sort of works in a really sort of liminal space between all of these disciplines. I think that's that's kind of the point. Is that right, Creatrix? Are you there? That is pretty much, yeah, yeah. My, my life story is liminality <laughs> is really what defines me, always being in between, even in terms of, you know, my background and my demographics being a uh, minority. And it just kind of falls into my work. Like, if I don't fit in anywhere, why should I be confining my work to just one angle? I find a lot of inspiration and a lot of interest in different fields, bring them together. Absolutely. Now, we've we've got you on the show today to talk about your show, Queer Lady Magician. I, I really do want to get to that and talk about that. But can we spend a bit of time talking about this idea of liminality um, as as a challenge to 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 set identities? How, oh yeah, for sure. Yes. Yeah. Like, uh, how do you how do you sort of um sort of it's it's sort of it's for for someone who kind of identifies as between identities as well. Um, I've I've sort of grown up outside of Australia, but I'm very much Australian, and I pass for for like white and and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, I, I find that that's kind of an identity of itself, being between identities. Do you, do you have do you have any thoughts of that? Oh yeah, yeah, I can totally relate because there's nothing really that quite speaks to you. Like you know, I grew up as a racial minority in Malaysia and. In Malaysia, everything is racially certified. Like, people like me end up being literally other. But 
also like there's a perception of people of my race. My son's from Bangladesh. Like, oh, you know, Bangladeshis are supposed to be like for migrant labor, and my family's upper middle class because my dad's an engineer. You know, so it's a bit like you have one word that describes me, but it doesn't really describe the reality of my life. Mm. And if it, I sometimes describe myself as being a platypus because it's made up of parts <laughs> that don't quite fit together, but, you know, they still exist. Like, how does a mammal lay eggs? Absolutely, and I think that's and really And look a like a duck. But, like, it still exists. <laughs> like, a platypus is not a myth. So it's like, you know, for me, as well as, like, I... When people talk about representation... Sometimes it can be a bit of a letdown because I never really see myself fully represented in any sort of media that came to represent someone like me. And that's because I just have such uh, weird or interesting life experience. And I think for a lot of us, you know, we sometimes fall between the cracks, whether it's all the cracks with bureaucracy because of a party situation no one has accounted for or representation, for example, like our life story doesn't quite fit what people expect of our identity, of our background. And, you know, sometimes the one thing that's constant about our identity is that we don't quite fit in. But we don't quite fit in also means we can draw from so many different areas and build that connection and build that representation that people don't necessarily expect. And that can be very powerful to be other people going, oh my God, I thought I was the only weirdo in this group, especially in groups that are supposed to be about people like me, and yet I still don't quite feel like I belong, but having that shared feeling of that can be in itself its own identity. Mm, so you find it's a it's a necessity to deconstruct uh, spaces that are dedicated to certain um, types of experience and certain types of identity, and that, that sounds a bit like the work of... Um, in, in some ways, it sounds a bit like the work of decolonization, and that's that's part of what you intend for, for magic in in your show. Is that right? Part of it, yes. Like it's very interesting to see stage magic. You know, it's the first recorded uh, magic trick, the cups and balls, was recorded in Egypt. But so you can make a case for people of color really inventing the other stage magic. But so much of the field is dominated by a straight cis white able-bodied men. And the effect is the type of work that gets done in popular stage magic is often like the same old faces, white men interest. You know, you have like the trope of the beautiful uh, voiceless assistant and it's more about showing off the man's prowess and how great he is. And it's not really a lot of consideration about like social justice or stories from other backgrounds and there's been there's a growing number of magicians from marginalized backgrounds that are starting to you know challenge that and bring their own spin and their own identity to things but there's still so much room for stage magic to be a tool for decolonization and there's been some history of it for example there's a well-known indian magician in pc sorkar who was active during the time of the British Empire, and he sometimes used his magic to try and troll the British Empire, <laughs> like forcing, like forcing them to write a statement, handing over land to PC Sarkar. You know, so there's just been a bit of history of magic being used in this kind of subversive decolonial ways, but in modern day times, it's just been very much overtaken by, you know, the same sort of dominant forces that take over every other media. And I want to challenge that. I want to see what potential is there and just put a different different perspective on magic. 
Hi, Tiara. It's uh, Edwin here. I was just going to ask a question. Um, obviously, you've had a background in burlesque in all sorts of areas. Why do you choose uh, circus to communicate your medium? What's what? What? How does that medium help communicate your message? Is what I mean to say. Right. Um, it's interesting, you know, the concept of magic as part of circus because it's kind of like circus adjacent mm. in a way. Like they kind of share like kind of sideshow vaudeville <laughs> background, but you don't right. necessarily like think of the two together. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, my approach with trying to express myself is usually I have this idea I want to express what sort of form do I want to express that in mm-hmm. and I've loved magic since I was a child it was really my first ever true passion and I fell out of it when I was a teenager because I tried to do a magic show and it kind of bombed and I thought <laughs> uh, you know I'm done it, it, this is not getting me anywhere so I moved on mm-hmm. um, but in the last couple of years ago or so I would tell my friends about my interest in magic and how, you know, I thought about going back into it, never really did anything about it. And all my friends were like, please do the thing. Just do, try the magic thing. Do the Queen Lady Magician thing. It's like, all right, I'm just going to give it a shot. And it's snowballed. Like, it started off as just a silly idea I was going to do for New Year's last year. And it snowballed into Women's Circus saying yes. And suddenly I had this avenue and suddenly it went from an idea to an actual show. And it, the show itself, you know, part of it is deconstructing magic tricks and putting a contemporary spin on them. For example, I have my signature act is the cups and balls. I mean, menstrual cups. Because <laughs> nobody ever talks about menstruation on stage, especially not in magic. That's um, but also, it ended up being a story about imposter syndrome and about the challenges of doing something you haven't done in a long time and mm. uh, dealing with the fear of failure. So in a way, the show is very meta. And it was about the process of making the show as the show. And it was just interesting that magic ended up being the useful vehicle for me to explore that, especially because so much of stage magic, you know, is around deception and mm-hmm. manipulation. And I am often honest to a fault and trying to balance that <laughs> out, like this need to be honest and vulnerable with this idea of magic as being deceptive. That was, that, that felt like why else would you express that it but through magic? And in another twist, I was trying to find out um, sort of more about more about your show. I'm following you on Instagram. Uh, your accounts seem to have been hacked by uh, someone called the Incredible Chappery. Oh my <laughs> God! Yes, uh, yeah, I'm not entirely sure what's going on with this incredible Chadbury douchebag. He's like trying to make himself the most incredible magician ever. Like he looks a bit weirdly like one of my assistants. Sad, you know, like... Has he gone rogue? Just, oh, my God. I don't know. It could be. Like, I don't... Why would it be Chad, though? Chad's supposed to be assistant. He's a, he's a white man. That's where... That's the rightful place for an assistant to... White man to be. That's my assistant. But, mm. Mm, you know, like, men are trying to take over even my own social circles. But, yeah, you know, I'm working on it. I'm trying to figure that out. Um, if you still go to the Midsummer website, look up Pre Lady Magician. The link is still working. He seems to think he has my show, but... No, the Spiegel Tent still has, has me booked. <laughs> Beautiful. But yeah, I'm getting to the bottom of it. Thank you. Well, I'm excited to find out what actually happens, whether you get your justice. And we'll probably find out if we come to your show, which starts on the 30th of January. It's yep. happening at the Melbourne Spiegel Tent. That's at 35 Johnson Street. And you can book tickets at midsummer.org.au. Uh, yep. Creatrix Tiara, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Thank you for having me. 
And that was a fantastic interview. We're going to go into a song now. Um, I think it's got a New Year's kind of spin to it. It's called New Shoes by the Bipolar Bears, and I hope you enjoy it. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio. This is Wednesday Breakfast. And before we move on to our next segment, I just really want to plug Tuesday Breakfast's fantastic program called Summer School. It's a, uh, it's a new type of, a new format of show that Tuesday Breakfast is doing every week for, um, for the next few weeks over the summer. Um, and it's taking a deep dive into the sort of the terminology and the ideas that, um, that you come across when, um, you, really start to see the world through an intersectional feminist lens. They they take apart terms like turf. What what is a turf? Who who are turfs and mm-hmm. what should we do about them? Um what does sovereignty really mean for indigenous people? 
what what's the difference between um, native title and land rights? And um, like, there's something that I kind of already knew, but like, this really crystallized for me what this means, and um, it's really great knowledge that you can pick up just for the first episode, which came out yesterday. Um, they spoke to Yamaji woman Dr. Crystal McKinnon, who's also um, the in, an Indigenous Research Fellow, um, who talked about sovereignty and self-determination of land rights. And Tarawa woman Robin Oxley spoke about, um, who's a lecturer in criminology at um, Monash University, um, talked about the criminal justice system and Aboriginal sovereignty. And also um, West Papuan activist and musician Ronnie Karani spoke about um, the... Uh, who, who's also director of Rise of the Morning Star, spoke about the Free West Papuan movement. And so if these are things that you don't know enough about, um, which I definitely didn't know enough mm. about, then listen to Tuesday Breakfast. Um, they've got a podcast. You can just, on your podcasting app, look up the words Tuesday Breakfast and you can download all of their back catalogue. Um, incidentally, if you typed in Wednesday Breakfast, you could do the same Ooh. for us. <laughs> Um, but it's, it's, it's really great that you can access this show. And, um, if you don't have the internet, then tune in next Tuesday at 7 a.m. and you'll get the next episode of, um, Summer School. School spelt with a K because they're cool kids. They are cool kids and the vibes are going. <laughs> so next up, we're going to hear from Tim Winton, a patron of the Marine Conservation Society and his, um, kind of conversation with Vivian Langford, a fair go for nature, talking about how we kind of solve extinction and pollution crisis. Now this is from, uh, Beyond Zero Emissions, uh, the Beyond Zero Emissions show, which you can catch on Monday, uh, on 3CR from 5pm, but he will listen to our interview with Tim Winton. The topic now is going to be talking about solving Australia's extinction crisis and our pollution crisis and to give us a legacy to be proud of. Firstly, I will hand over to uh, Tim Winton. And Tim, as I said, doesn't really need uh, much introduction. Incredible environmentalist, apart from being a, a fantastic writer, he's also been the patron of the Australian Marine Conservation Society for a number of years and uh, an activist and leader in his own right. And I welcome Tim. Sorry to get the eyewear on. You're getting old. It's the shits, isn't it? Um, as some of you will know, I, I make up stuff for a living. Uh, but this morning uh, I'm going to tell you a true story. Uh, and it'll sound improbable, I know. Uh, and if only a few years ago it would have been downright impossible uh, for reasons I'll get to later, reasons that are uh, pertinent to why we're here today. You see, late in life I seem to have uh, developed a new enthusiasm. Uh, it's more of a passion than a hobby. And it proves, I think, that you... You can teach an old dog new tricks. Um, I used to be known as a wunderkind. Hard to believe, I know. Um, even harder to believe just how much it bothered me as a young man to be called something like that. A wunderkind or an enfant terrible. They just sounded like poncy, foreign-sounding ways of calling someone a weirdo. Um, and, you know, poor little me. Um, well, obviously things panned out all right because um, I got to be old and unexceptional like everybody else. But... Uh, this old dog does have a new thing. Uh, I'm into swimming with whales. And I've been doing it for a few years now. And I tell you, there's nothing quite like it. Um, and there aren't many places in the world you can do this every day of the week. But I know a place up north, uh, and in winter it's lousy with humpbacks. Thousands of the buggers. These whales, they pull in uh, every, every winter, uh, have their babies and nurse them. And they stick around 
resting uh, and socialising for months. And uh, as my wife and I have got more um, interested in them, we started going out in the boat and um, taking photos of them, doing the right thing, of course, you know, observing all the protocols and keeping our distance. And it's been great um, to see these huge creatures rocketing out of the water and slamming down with a noise you can hear from five miles away, um, watching them slap their fins and feed their young and even watching them sleep is pretty impressive. So we're out there a season or two, snapping away, learning stuff about the way they socialise and organise, and um, we just figured that the fascination was entirely one way. But pretty soon we discovered these giants were curious about us. And it didn't matter how far away you stayed, eventually some of them were going to come over and check you out. And I mean, go the full-on sticky bit. Uh, they've got this particular pattern of behaviour. Um, they do a kind of drive-by, and it's a bit like being a kid in a country town with L, or with L plates, you know. You do bog laps uh, until, I think in South Australia it's called chucking a mani, um, which I love the sound of that. But you just drive up and down the main street until the, the, the local talent finally cottons on to how awesome you are. Um, anybody remember that? Um, so these whales are doing that and they're going past in pairs and then they'll pull off a little bit and they'll, they'll confer. And you can imagine them talking to each other. It's like, that one over there, he's so into you. Go and, go and talk to him. No, no, you, you talk to him. That's what it's like. And they're going past maybe 50 metres um, away and then, uh, you know, and then they'll, they'll do a U-turn and then they'll come back and a bit closer and they'll chuck another U-E and then until they're coming by so close that they're just eyeballing you shamelessly. You know, it wasn't like they wound the window down and they're checking you out. Um, and after that, things will go a bit quiet. They'll dive. Um, and often as not, they'll just go under the boat and swim around and turn the boat around. And, and then they'll pop up next to the boat, give a big stinky blow, which reeks, believe me. Um, and when they, and, they, and sometimes they, they'll go perpendicular. It's called spy hopping. And they'll, they'll lean into the boat to suss you out. And the first time that happened, we nearly shat ourselves. Um, five metre boat, 15 metre animal. Um, you, can, you can imagine. But what finally got our attention um, was more significant than their size. It was the scale of their curiosity, the quality of their attention. They're trying to figure out what we are, what part of this floating mass is contraption and what's creature, which bit's alive. So in the end, to, to be neighbourly, I guess, um, we obliged them by uh, separating ourselves from the boat. We started getting in the water with them. And that's when they got really excited and the fun really began. And it's a pretty amazing thing to be in the water with an animal as big as a greyhound bus um, and having it swim right up in your face to feel you out. That's exactly what's happening. Their, their whole bodies are seismic instruments. And they're reading our heartbeats. They're literally feeling us out. And they'll stay for an hour sometimes, right up next to you, underneath you. And they're like a dolphin that needs quite a bit more operating space than a dolphin. <laughs> uh, I mean, they're massive, so it's a little unnerving. Um, and they could, you know, they could kill you in a moment, you know, by design or just by accident, because even megafauna make mistakes. Um, but they're fascinated. They're enchanted. They, they seem genuinely intrigued. And this meeting of neighbours at the species fence, it's a new thing for all of us. And obviously I can't speak for the whales, but 
personally, I feel very lucky uh, and privileged to be, you know, to be able to have done this. Half the time now, we don't even use the boat anymore. Um, we just paddle out on our SUPs, on our stand-up paddle boards. That's a bit more hardcore because uh, really then it's, there's no buffer. There's really just you and them and you and whatever else is in the water that day. Um, dolphins, manta rays, sea snakes, tiger sharks. Um, I had a marlin swim up alongside me last year. I'm talk about mutual surprise. I mean, a marlin, you know, why the long face? <laughs> um, so I was out there one afternoon last spring on, on, the, on, the, on the boards and um, my wife was with me and we'd had about 20 humpbacks uh, coming and going um, for about uh, half an hour or so and the water was like glass. Uh, there was just no wind at all, which was just as well because we were a bit more than a mile out by then. Um, and there was this particularly engaged trio, um, three animals, a, a cow, a calf uh, and another adult. The third whale tends to be the escort, um, and usually it's the calf that's most keen to interact. Um, the escort often isn't interested, it's usually got a job to do, um, so it stays off. Um, this day it was the mother that was the most curious, and I could see her rounding the calf off away from us, uh, keeping him at a safe distance, um, but it was only so she could come in and check us out. And uh, so I've, you know, she she started heading in toward us and so I figured, yeah, fine, she looks keen, I'll, I'll hop in with her. So I take my hat and my sunnies off and I put it on the board with my paddle, get in the water, hang onto my board and behind me, um, maybe about 10 metres behind me, Denise, my wife, uh, does the same thing. Don't really know what was going on that day but because uh, usually when a whale comes in to check you out, they're just mooching along, they're hardly, they're hardly even in gear. Um, but this old girl, she was a bit of a lead foot. Um, I mean, she was really hammered down. She was making a big bow wave. Um, and I'm like, whoa. Um, because if you see four or five male humpbacks swimming like that, you definitely stay in the boat. Um, or if you're on a board, you, um, you just paddle home as discreetly as you can, um, whistling your lucky tune. Because um, that's a kind of a wild bunch scenario. Um, a posse of bulls like that was about as welcome as a call from a factional boss on Christmas Eve. Um, anyway, soccer mum drives by so quick that um, even at a distance of 30 metres, um, we're just left turning circles in the water. She's pushing that much water. So we're hanging onto our boards and I just couldn't figure it out. It was like she was doing school pickup and the Range Rover was on the blink and um, she's had to borrow the beamer off the neighbours and she's not used to the acceleration and... She's late getting Daphne to ballet, or, I don't know. Um, but she just fangs past, and then she does a handbrake turn. Um, and, she come, and she comes back and repeats the procedure even, even closer, um, maybe about 10 metres off, and we're just barely hanging onto our boards um, when we're spinning in her wake. And then she gets real personal, um, and she comes in really close. This time, thankfully, with the throttle backed off a bit, um, it was almost as though she's got the seat adjusted properly, um, <laughs> finally. Or she's just managed to get control over her own excitement, I suspect. Um, so she comes in slower and steadier, and that's kind of reassuring for me um, because I can feel my heart rate rising and my teeth are starting to tingle. You know that old feeling that you get? Um, by the time she comes in and her nose is level with me, um, she's so close I can literally touch her, and I don't. 
and she's got this big pervy eye right in my face as, as she's coming by and she's seriously checking me out. Uh, I mean, she's very, very close. Um, and this is all terribly exciting, as you can imagine, um, in a shitting yourself sort of way. But then I'm thinking, pecs, pecs. I mean, hers, not mine. Mine will be on saving. Um, I'm, what I'm thinking is, what's she going to do with her pectoral fins? Because they're like wings. Uh, they're huge. Um, and I know that she can crank them down, and of course that's what I'm hoping and praying that she's going to do, because um, if she doesn't pull the near side fin in as she comes past me, um, she's going to cut me in half. Um, those things are five metres long. They weigh a tonne. Uh, they're about that fat, at the, and the leading edge is all knobbly and barnacled like a, something that a Viking would use as a um, negotiating instrument. <laughs> so I'm wondering right at this moment, you know, if this was all such a good idea. And none of this could happen 40 years ago, not even 30 years ago. I wasn't thinking this at the time. Uh, this was a thought I had the luxury of having afterwards. In that moment, I think I was incapable of mentation of any description. So what happened? Um, well, at the last moment, she just makes an adjustment. She doesn't pull that wing in the way I'm hoping and praying that she will. No, she decides to lift it. Um, so a second before this huge appendage just mows me down, um, she lifts it out of the water uh, as if she's about to swat me and turn me into you know, middle-aged, sun-cured pate. Um, and the sky disappears, and there's this thing like an aircraft wing going over the top of me and there's water pouring off it onto my head. My wife's screaming, I'm screaming. <laughs> um, and this big old girl just shrugs her fin back in, makes a little subtle adjustment, um, drops it back into the water and just goes on silently by as if she's seen what she's come to see. She's got a job to do, a kid to feed, and she just ploughs on. Um, and, you know, I paddled home in a state best described as elevated. Um, and as I keep saying, this scene just couldn't have happened when I was a young man. Um, because back then, it's not as if um, yeah, there just weren't enough whales left in the ocean to make encounters like this possible, let alone routine, as they have become um, for us. Because we'd hunted them to the brink of extinction. And we didn't let up in that little enterprise here until 1978. This is pretty personal for me because I grew up in Australia's last whaling town. I saw sperm whales butchered as a matter of routine. And if you've ever seen a, a whale decapitated by a steam-driven saw, uh, it's an image that you're not going to... It's taken more than one lifetime to forget that. So my experience of normal has changed over time. And thankfully my culture has evolved. Why? How? Well, because ordinary citizens demanded change and governments, to their credit, listened. New environmental laws were written and new cultural norms were born. The whales I'm lucky enough to swim with are living emblems of that change and those laws. Every winter they congregate at a place called Exmouth Gulf near Mingaloo Reef. They're part of one of the great conservation success stories of our time, something Australians can be proud to have been a part of. And thank God those whales are now protected. But you know, the great sheltered waterway that these whales take refuge in every winter, uh, it has almost no protection. Exmouth Gulf is nearly 50 times the size of Sydney Harbour. It's one of the last intact arid zone estuaries left in the world. 
It's a haven for endangered dugongs, turtles and migratory birds. It supports 850 species of fish alone. The IUCN says it has world heritage values. We call it Ningaloo's nursery. But it's not even a marine park, let alone a world heritage property. And how is that possible? Well, that's a long political story I haven't got time to tell this morning. But the upshot is that the Gulf is wide open to industrialisation. The fossil fuel industry wants a port there. The salt mine is being proposed there. And in 2020, a heavy engineering multinational called Subsea 7 wants to build a gas pipe facility there. And this last matter is before the West Australian EPA right now. And I can tell you I'm deeply worried about the outcome and just as worried about the process. There are many thousands of Australians who are similarly concerned about this and about hundreds of other places. In every state of our federation, there are communities boiling with anxiety and frustration. And the reason for their concern is pretty straightforward because experience has taught these citizens that when it comes to defending the places they love, every step of the process is weighted in favour of the corporation. Planning is often a closed-door affair, as it has been at Exmouth Gulf. Access to information is wildly unequal. So is access to every level of government. Massive differences in financial capacity mean access to legal advice is similarly unequal. When it comes to the citizen defending nature, there is no fair go. Our current environmental laws are outdated. They aren't working. Not for the environment, not for the citizens whose lives and futures depend on it. And if you think I'm just a whinger, take a look at the national outcomes. We're facing, as Lyndon said, you know, a, a mammal extinction crisis. We have desperate problems with water management, land clearing, soil degradation. The nation has no climate policy. And the world's greatest coral reef may well die on our watch. Closer to home, for me at least, one of the world's last intact estuaries could be surrendered to the oil and gas industry during the term of a Labor state government and probably during the term of a national Labor government. And what's that going to look like? Well, it's going to look like business as usual. And it needn't be. And it shouldn't be. Eighteen years ago, the WA government acknowledged that some ecosystems are simply too important for business as usual. It was a Labor government, as it happens. Jeff Gallup famously drew a line in the sand at Ningaloo. In every decision going forward, the needs of the ecosystem would come first. And the many thousands of citizens who'd been a part of this sea change, who demanded this policy shift and made that reform electorally safe for Labor, believe that this line in the sand would be honoured. Many thousands of us are watching to see if that line will hold, despite the oligarchic power of the fossil fuel industry, despite the way governments so routinely submit to that power. The Labor Party has a proud legacy at Ningaloo, one I hope it will honour. And federally, it has a proud record on marine parks, one I hope it will reclaim from the bastardry and bad faith of the past five years. Out amongst the humpbacks and dugongs, down in the mangroves and corals, right across this island continent, in the rivers and forests, there are legacies to defend, but opportunities as well, to build on historic leaps forward 
to secure them and add to them with stronger laws, more equitable processes, more responsive agencies to move our culture on and up beyond business as usual because business as usual is killing our country. It's weakening our communities and it's threatening our democracy. Business as usual is not about the fair go. It's inimical to a fair go. I know what it's like to be subject, just for a moment, to something mighty, to be spared by a force of nature that owes me nothing. But the natural world is now at our mercy and we owe it our very existence. Our children's lives depend on the decisions we make now, the quality of mercy we're willing to extend now. So giving life to life, honouring and protecting the world that sustains and renews us, that's now a vital part of the fair go for our neighbours, for those unborn, for a just society, for our very survival as a species. Justice begins with the dirt under our feet, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat. It's time to reform our environmental laws to reflect this reality. It's time to step up and get this right. Comrades, it's time to get serious about a fair go for nature. Thank you. And that was Tim Winton talking to Vivian Langford on the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show on 3CR. You can find that on Mondays from 5pm. Um, we're going to go into a, another song now. So it's from a little festival I went to recently, and it's called I Want to See You Again by Rach Brennan and the Pines. <laughs>
And that was I Want to See You Again. Um, next up, we have a short clip of from the ASRC where we have Jana Favero, Director of an Advocacy of Campaigns at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, and Paul Power, CEO, Refugee Council Australia, speaking at the ALP conference held in Adelaide in December 2018. The session looked at two important amendments needed to assure the safety fairness and treatment of people seeking asylum in Australia. This was also recorded by Vivian Langford, uh, which is from Beyond Zero Emissions, the community show, every Monday on 3CR from 5pm. I've just said that one too many times today, but really tune in, because she's pumping out some fantastic stuff. As many of you would be aware, the physical and mental health conditions that are facing people seeking asylum and refugees on Manus and Nauru is a dire situation that has deteriorated. Um, the good news is that the bill did pass through the Senate and all going well, we expect that bill to pass the House if Parliament does resume um, on the 12th of February, but we also expect that there will be quite a negative narrative between now and that time from the government um, raising issues of, of, of fear and also Operation Sovereign Borders. So that's why intentionally the focus of today's topic is very much having a look at our two priority areas of amendment in the ALP platform, which will be debated. And the two amendments are not focused offshore, they're focused very much on what is happening right here in Australia. Um, in particular for the Refugee Council, who represents hundreds of member organisations, and for the ASRC that provides services to over 4,000 people seeking asylum living in the community. The two amendments that we are seeking, one is around a safety net for the end-to-end -end of the process of people seeking asylum, and the second one is for a fair process for those who are going through the legal process, are the two areas that have really come up from those who are seeking asylum in Australia as the two key priorities. So our session today is going to very much focus on having a look at how we can ensure the safety and fairness and treatment of people seeking asylum who are living in our community in Adelaide, in Sydney, in Melbourne, in Brisbane, in Perth, in rural and regional towns as well. Um, and it does feel like there is the tide is shifting a little bit. The um, Kids Off Nauru campaign, which was extremely successful at the start of the campaign, about 40% of people even knew in Australia the kids were detained um, offshore on Nauru and then towards the end of the campaign, if not still going because there are still a number of children under 10 who were detained there, um, it was about 80% actually agreed that children and their families should be brought to Australia. So I think that that is, it's been a very, very slow burn. I've been at the ASLC for nine years but it does feel like things are slightly shifting so hopefully we can bring that focus as well to the conditions that people seeking asylum are facing in Australia as you'll hear from our four speakers there is a high level of destitution, homelessness, mental and physical health issues are also facing people seeking asylum in Australia. So I'd first like to welcome Paul Power who is the CEO of the Refugee Council of Australia 
Paul has been the CEO of RECOA, which is a national umbrella body representing about 200 organisations working with refugees and people seeking asylum, and Paul has been in that position since 2006. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Jano, and uh, I too would like to acknowledge the Kana people as the custodians of the land on which we stand and also echo um, ASRC's wish to see uh, genuine reconciliation and justice in this country. Um, last year, uh, our organisation uh, worked with others in the, uh, the refugee sector to put forward a uh, joint submission to the ALP conference um, process on the issues that we saw for refugees in, um, in, in Australia and how Australian refugee policy could be reformed. And in fact, today you've been given a two-page summary um, of that statement. It's actually pleasing that many of the ideas that were part of that submission are actually reflected in the current draft of the ALP National Platform. Uh, of, of course, you know, there are issues where uh, our organisation and the sector disagrees um, with the Labor Party, um, but uh, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that many of the ideas that uh, people who are working with refugees and people seeking asylum and people who've been refugees themselves, many of those ideas are actually, you know, potentially could be implemented um, by a future Labor government if the platform is, is adopted and taken seriously. So, um, but what we wanted to uh, focus on, as Jana has said, um, are two uh, possible amendments which are actually reflected in the sheet that you were given as you entered the room. And I'm just going to talk about um, the safety net for all. Um, yeah, I think the, you know, this, uh, in terms of the issues affecting members, member organisations of the Refugee Council of Australia, I think the forced destitution of people seeking asylum is one of the greatest stresses uh, for um, organisations working with people uh, who are connected with the humanitarian program and particularly um, a source of deep stress uh, for the people who, who are being affected by these policies of forced destitution. Um, yeah, in June, our organisation produced a, a report called With Empty Hands, which has actually looked at this whole question of forced destitution of people who are going through the, the asylum process. And... Unfortunately, what we're seeing um, is a level of destitution amongst people seeking asylum that we haven't seen before in terms of the numbers of people affected, um, and also a combination of intentional policies, um, in some cases of the uh, Minister for Home Affairs, um, who's quite clearly pushed for changes to um, reduce support for individuals seeking asylum, and also... Probably, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to, to uh, tell what the motives of um, uh, some in the Department of Home Affairs, but um, at best incompetence and unfortunately uh, at worst um, examples of malice towards people seeking asylum, which is really unfortunate and, and are the sorts of issues that would actually need to be addressed culturally um, by a future government. The sorts of things that we're seeing um, is people having uh, the right to work denied or removed for no apparent reason. We're seeing income support for people being cut because in the past they have sent money to relatives in more desperate circumstances than their own. We're seeing uh, people uh, who are seeking asylum being offered university places and then actually having their access to any financial support cut because they are full-time students. Um, we're seeing delays in the reissuing of bridging visas 
um, which in quite a number of cases leads to people who have jobs losing those jobs because the employers don't want to fall foul of the very clear rules about not employing people with a valid visa. And even more disturbing has been Minister Peter Dutton's decision earlier this year to begin cutting support to people who are seeking asylum because they are deemed to be work-ready, regardless of whether or not they have any work or any income. So far, more than 1,000 people have been cut uh, off their status resolution support services, the SRSS program, which is the main form of support for people seeking asylum, uh, between August and, and this month. And from what the Department of Home Affairs has told us, the number of people who could be cut during the course of next year could be as high as 6,000 additional. So 7,000 people cut from the program. We also know that an, uh, a significant number, and we, we're not able to quantify how many, but certainly many hundreds, possibly in the low thousands, have been denied access to support uh, when in the past they would have actually received um, access to SRSS. So while the government says up to this point we haven't cut any families from the SRSS program, they've clearly denied many family groups from access to this SRSS program where in the past those families would have had access. Now what's... I mean there are many disturbing aspects but one of the disturbing aspects um, is that the largest group of people who are affected by these cuts to SRSS uh, support are people going through the so-called fast-track process who arrived by boat in 2012 or the first half of 2013 um, and don't have a resolution of, of their asylum process because of delays you know, within the Department of Home Affairs. These are the same people who were sent to offshore detention under the Gillard government initially, brought back to Australia uh, and denied the right to work until uh, 2015. Now they've been given the right to work and they've been told that if you don't work, you starve. Now we and all of the people involved obviously want us to see um, people support themselves if, if at all possible. But the bottom line for everybody who's concerned about these individuals is that if people have no income, they should not be left in a situation where they're forced into destitution and homelessness. And this is the the nub of the issue for us. Um, Sure, it's important. It's it's definitely important to uh, encourage people to support themselves, but don't leave individuals in our community with no income at all, because all of us know what the implications are. Um, and, And what we're seeing from... Asylum seeker support agencies like ASRC and its equivalents in, in uh, different cities and states, from uh, the, the largest charities, from all sorts of community and neighbourhood centres and from community groups of many kinds, is that these organisations cannot cope with the demand that they're currently seeing in terms of financial support for people who've been forced into destitution while seeking asylum. Because collectively these organisations are now trying to support fi- uh, thousands of people um, with as many of the costs as possible related to their housing and uh, you know, food and, and basic needs. And all of the agencies report that they are left with a heartbreaking task of working out who to assist and who to turn away, knowing that in many cases there's actually nowhere else for those that they turn away to actually receive help from. <coughs> Recently, our organisation and a collection of other agencies, including ASRC, jointly commissioned uh, a report on the current cuts to the SRSS program and its economic implications was conducted by John Bernicoy and Tony Ward. And they estimated 
that with this current round of cuts to the SRSS program as it's rolled out, the impact on just on state and territory funded services alone will be between 80 million and 100 million dollars a year. Um, while people are being, while there are savings at the federal level in terms of income support, uh, these escalate into all sorts of other costs related to homelessness services, child protection services, physical and mental health services, and many more. And that does not include you know, the impact on the charities which are busily trying to raise funds from the Australian public in order to, to try to keep people in housing, keep people fed. So what we're asking for, and I'll finish on this point, um, is a, a stronger and clearer indication in the ALP platform, and the wording is suggested on the sheet there, um, which spells out that the ALP will be committed to ensuring that people have access to a decent safety net throughout the asylum process, from the initial lodgement of the claim until the final resolution of, of, uh, of a, a claim through the judicial review process, if that's necessary. Um, well, because what we're seeing... Well, we ran out of copies. Okay, yeah, so it relates to uh, paragraph 319 is an area where we're um, suggesting some revised wording. I'm certainly happy to share that with any, any individuals who would like to have an influence on, uh, on delegates who are participating in the, the um, modification of the platform. So we're asking that um, <coughs> people have access to the right to work and study the Medicare um, and to uh, you know, financial support if they require it um, throughout, including at the primary merits review and judicial review stages of the asylum process. Because what we're seeing are the implications of where that doesn't happen. You know, and uh, there are many, many people. You know, Australia is one of the wealthiest countries and it's actually, nationally, we're at the wealthiest point that we've ever been in our existence. And yet there are thousands of people because of intentional government policy in our community at the moment who are struggling to be able to find money to, to house themselves and to feed them, their, themselves and their children. That's got to stop. Thank you. And that was Jana Favero uh, and Paul Power, um, respectively from the ASRC and the Refugee Council of Australia, speaking at the ALP conference held in Adelaide in December. And, well, with our last seven minutes of the show, we thought we'd talk about a few events coming up. So I've got on the 13th of January, so this Sunday, the Girls of the Front Sunday session. So at the moment, uh, the Corner Hotel is running a really cool little uh, thing where on Sundays it calls all girls to the front as we invite some of the fav- our favourite female and gender non-conforming friends around for a Sunday kind of session celebrating music of women and um, other kind of artists. So there's a really cool, fun thing to get on get on down to. Another one for uh, younger people is the AYCC, the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, is throwing its uh, annual Vic Volunteer Information Night on uh, January the 17th. And this would be really great if you want to go along and find out, I don't know, what you can do to kind of help battle this overwhelming topic of climate change that I know can often scare us out of doing nothing. Uh, yeah. Will, do you have any events? Uh, yeah. I'm um, just sort of um, looking ahead to Invasion Day, which is coming up on the, um, the 26th of January. Uh, so a commemoration of Invasion Day and a march will be starting at 10.30 a.m., on the steps of Parliament House, that's on Spring Street in Narm, um, brackets Melbourne, uh, and it's 
being attended by a large number of groups. So I know that if you look up Nish Morris on Twitter, then you'll be able to find that there's a an Asian contingent um, marching in the in the in the commemoration this year. Mm-hmm. But um, whoever you are, whatever background you come from, it's good to come and show solidarity um, on Invasion Day. Um, so, so solidarity with First Nations people as they they mourn and commemorate this day. Um, so that's going to be on the 26th of January to say again. 10.30 a.m. at Parliament House. Yeah, and uh, just looking forward to next week, we'll be having um, more of a packed show. Uh, we'll be looking at the ACTU's uh, report that came out last year talking about sexual harassment in the workplace uh, from a survey that, survey that they conducted and kind of the results of that. And we'll be talking to the Human Rights Law Centre uh, about the Modern Slavery Act uh, that's currently before Parliament, which is fantastic. Yeah. Now, of course, all of town is buzzing about summer school, which happens every Ooh. Tuesday from 7am <laughs> on 3CR only. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you are interested in other sun- summer school activities, um, you can turn up to the Socialist Alliance's Activist Summer School and Conference. Special guest Sucheta Day, who is an Indian socialist, feminist and student leader, will be um, featured at the summer school. It's happening from January the 15th until the 20th, so it's five days of uh, panels and talks and classes um, happening at the Geelong Trades Hall, and you can register at trybooking.com slash yqds and find out a bit more there. Um, yeah, so uh, there's going to be an introduction to Marxism, activist skill sharing, campaigns and issues, um, revolution and counter-revolution, um, and tickets range from $15 for high school students, and then for adults it's $30, $30 up to 100 So um, just check it out at that website that I mentioned earlier, trybooking.com <laughs> slash YQDS. Yeah, and that's that's about all of our events for the moment. Uh, Corner Hotel, of course, just saying with the uh, Invasion Day. We'll be following up on the 27th with the Drifle J Top 100. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. But, um, yeah, thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Um, just in terms of New Year's resolutions, I know yeah. Will and I were talking, and obviously this is the yeah. first show of the year that, we've <laughs> that we're back. Yeah. Um, Will, do you have any final parting thoughts, new resolu- resolutions we should hold you to? Oh, gosh. Um, I did mention jokingly that I was going to wear more hats this yeah. year because um, I, I think if even if it's not a trend, I just think it's good to be safe and smart. Um, yes. Uh, and so, yeah. counting. Just take, just take better care of my, my rapidly aging face, really. Um, <laughs> I, I've got a skincare oh. routine. Um, it's not working. You can see all these spots on my face right now. But new me, new year, it's going to be great. New face. New face. How about you? I'm going to try and do exercises here. So I used to oh. love rock climbing, so I'm getting back into that. Hey. I want to do, I'm going to be doing German longsword fighting. fighting what? Thanks to my nerdy partner. What is that? <laughs> it's literally longsword fighting. Oh. Um, they found an ancient German manuscript talking about like the moves, mm. and so a bunch of people have got together, made a group, mm. and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Can I tell you another New Year's resolution Please of mine? Please do, Will. Is to listen to more 3CR. And you know how yes. you can do that? Podcasting. Mm. So many shows that we don't talk about on breakfast are podcasting. Mm. You can listen to Asia Pacific um, Worker Links. They've got that great show, Asia, Asia Pacific Currents. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's Out of the Pan, which is hosted by Sally Goldner, which is all about pansexual, bisexual issues and topics and news and that's usually on a Sunday and so if you're you're free on a Sunday at, at I think 12 o'clock then why not listen in but mm. if you aren't like me if you're a weekend worker then out of the pan podcast is really helpful 
way that you can listen to podcasts is by downloading an app onto your phone mm-hmm. and searching just just searching out of the pan. Yep, I'm going to try to listen to Women on the Line. Going to get like a consistent yes. listening happening. That's another one that podcasts really well. That They've needs to happen. Yep. yep. And uh, Communication Mixdown. Mm, Love that show. show. Looking forward to yep, seeing yep. what they do for 2019. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's been Will and Idwin um, for 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. We'll be back again next week with uh, Judith and Dean joining us later this month. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see you again next week. Up next is Stick Together. Stick Together. Stay tuned. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.